0: It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Teresa. And I'm Amy. We are two ordinary moms looking for inspiration wherever we can find it. So, Teresa, what was your highlight from last week? I wanted to talk about the food drive. Oh. Because yeah. I think that was just a blast for a number of reasons. I love that, well, to get to spend the time with you. Oh, yeah. I did let bye, my kids bye. sleep in because I was worried if no one showed up, then they might be a little bit grouchy and you'd hear them you know, <laughs> grumbling a little bit. So, I just love that as we're sitting there discussing how to make the next one better. Right, Yeah. Up drives my mom's friend Aww. and a Bible study leader, Judy, with, you know, a ton of food. And they had, she had taken her grandchildren around oh, and collected I money so in their sweet. neighborhood. So we got a money donation for the neighborhood house Aww. and food. And then I love that that one man who probably, he appeared to possibly be homeless, but yeah. brought us food and said that everybody needs help sometimes. So... I just left there totally inspired.
0: Me too. With the people that
1: were bringing food, and then to have my girlfriend Diane and her partner Nancy drop it off for us, and then send me a picture that was being sent and taken by good hands, just warmed by heart.
0: Yeah, me too.
1: I loved, Judy had commented on Mother Teresa and loneliness, oh, yeah. and I knew, you know, I, I know quite a few Mother Teresa quotes, mainly right. because she shares my name, or I guess I share her name, but I had to look up the one on, on loneliness, because I wasn't familiar with it, but she said, we can cure physical diseases with medicine, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. Oh, And I just love all of that, because I think she was wise beyond her years. I am most definitely a coffee drinker.
0: Oh, me too. <laughs> it's like
1: gotten into the habit where it's the first thing in, that I want in the morning. My husband's hooked up the coffee pot to our Google Home system, so I <laughs> can wake up and tell, you know, Google to turn on the coffee pot, and then I've got an extra five minutes, and then I can get up and enjoy my coffee. But I also love the occasional Starbucks soy vanilla latte. Oh, yeah. But I hate having to go there, wait in line, so I mostly stick to my own home-brewed coffee. However, with this find, I would probably be getting more coffee at Biddy and Bo's coffee shop if we had one nearby. So Biddy and Bo's was started in Wilmington, North Carolina in January 2016. Amy Wright opened the shop, named after her two youngest children, Biddy and Bo. Amy and her husband, Ben, opened the shop when they started to think of the future of Biddy and Bo, who both have Down syndrome. They thought about how difficult it is for people with intellectual impairment to find work. And feel like they're contributing to their community. Before starting this company, Amy and Ben Wright had discovered that 70% of adults with intellectual or developmental disabilities are unemployed. Oh, That's just crazy. It high. is crazy.
0: I, I, There's an article I saw about the hearing impaired also have high unemployment. It's just unfair. Oh, yeah. Amy and Ben wanted
1: better for Biddy and Bo. They wanted to change things by creating a company that would generate jobs and opportunities for the disabled. They researched different businesses and landed on a coffee shop, which I think is brilliant. Yeah. So they started a coffee shop, only about 500 square feet, and hired the majority of their staff from the developmentally disabled community. Originally named just Bo's Coffee, (laughs) the name was changed to Biddy and Bo's when Bo asked for Biddy's name to be added on his 12th birthday. Oh, cute. How sweet is that? The first store started with 19 employees that were developmentally disabled, The coffee shop became such a local hit with lines out the door, they eventually moved into a 5,000-square-foot space that allowed people to stay and enjoy their coffee and become the company's national headquarters. The reception from the community has been great, and the business has been booming for the company. In 2018, they opened their second store in Charleston, South Carolina. Annapolis, Maryland. Savannah, Georgia soon followed. The company is also partnering. Yeah. Growing, definitely. The company is also partnering up with large corporations to put their coffee shops in the national headquarters of the companies. In all the stores an average of 80% of the employees are developmentally disabled. Several of the managers for the stores are former social workers with experience working with intellectually challenged people, which I think is oh, brilliant.
0: I, you know, and the in the community for those um all individuals, them. I think that's so awesome.
1: The employees also receive minimum wage plus tips. Federal law allows companies to hire developmentally disabled people under sheltered workplace laws and pay them less than minimum wage. Which is hard enough with minimum wage, let alone less than. Yeah. The rights chose not to do this, wanting to create a place where their employees can help support themselves and get real-world work experience. (sighs) Biddy and Bose is a nonprofit, and all the proceeds go to Able to Work USA, which is a nonprofit that pairs developmentally disabled workers with businesses across the country. The employees have conditions ranging from cerebral palsy to Down syndrome. The jobs give them confidence and allows them to contribute to society. They provide a needed service and get to help others. So it's a win-win. World,
0: yeah, for sure.
1: Wright says, we always say it's more than a cup of coffee. It's a human's right movement. And the coffee shop's just a vehicle for making that happen. It's given our employees the respect they deserve. People have come from all over the world for coffee, and the main store keeps a map with pins to mark where the people have come from. Oh, just like that. <laughs> just just like, like our map for like the a, podcast. Yay. Another part of the coffee shop that I just love is that it helps break down barriers. People coming into Biddy and Bow's get to interact with employees who have a disability and find that they are not all that different. Once you start interacting with people with disabilities, a lot of the stigmas start to disappear. That's so true. In an interview with CNN, Amy Wright said, Creating this has given people a way to interact with people with disabilities that they never would have had before. She said, "This is a safe place where people can test the waters and realize how much more alike we are than different, and that's what it's all about." I just love this. I hope they branch out this way, and I really hope other companies will find ways to employ more physically and disabled people. It just makes a huge difference in their lives and really helps break down the barriers. So it's a win for all of us. Yeah, me too. I want to just circle back before I cover Irina Sendler way back to episode one. Oh, wow. With Claudette Colvin, yeah. the young lady who refused to give up her seat on the bus well before Rosa Parks. Right. I had noted an author that I found while researching her, Philip Hoos. He yeah. wrote a great book on children's history, complete with pictures, which is a big thing for me. I like I like yeah. photos. Um, well, tells the story, well, yeah, but this one that's a that's a different one. But yeah, the book that I wanted to just quickly cover is the Boys who Challenged Hitler, nude Peterson, and the Churchill Club. Wow, that's a heavy title. It's a heavy title. It's, <laughs> a, heavy title. it's yeah. a super quick read, and I loved it for a number of reasons. The young men in the story, and I mean young decide to take action when the adults around them aren't doing anything when they think that they aren't doing enough to protect their country. Denmark had been taken over by the German army, and the boys thought their country didn't do enough to resist. And apparently, Winston Churchill agreed because he was calling Denmark, quote, Hitler's tame canary. Oh. So the boys, they organized and strategically sabotaged German vehicles, power lines, buildings that had ammunition. I mean, these boys were wanted by the Germans because they were just causing chaos. They were bold enough to sneak into restaurants that the German soldiers frequented, and they'd steal their weapons from the coat room. (laughs) Brave. Really brave. I'm just, yeah, that's incredible. These boys were most definitely not violent, but they wanted to make it as difficult as possible for Hitler's men, and they did just that. I love the story because it's like a David and Goliath tale. These boys were definitely afraid. Right, yeah. With good reason. Some more than others, but they didn't let that stop them from their mission. There's a page that includes pictures of the Churchill Club, and I found myself constantly going back to the real pictures of the boys and, and really just how young they were. Yeah. And their bravery. You just have to listen to your heart, and these boys did just that, and then they acted. Spoiler alert. Yeah. So if you don't want to know, I especially love the story because they survived.
0: Oh, I mean, yeah. they,
1: they definitely had post-traumatic stress disorder right, and different things of course. But from this. But I was worried about that since so many resistance fighters didn't survive. But just because they survived doesn't mean they didn't pay a price for their club. The boys were wanted for months and eventually arrested. Oh. Where they were given rectal exams upon entry and two sheets of toilet paper.
0: Oh my goodness. I really hope that the
1: sheets meant a different thing back then because that sounds just absolutely absurd, but they had, they got three slices of rye bread for breakfast, porridge for lunch, and a small portion of something hot for dinner. Nude Peterson, who was interviewed during this whole book, yeah. he lost 44 pounds, he said, in the first month or two. So they did not have food. I just hope that they make a movie of this story because I think it would inspire both young and old to be brave in the face of evil and always listen to your heart. Last week I talked uh, about that Tough Mother's book by oh, Jason yeah. Porath. And I just have to cover one more mom from that <laughs> book. Well, for now, that is. I'm sure there will be others. But as I noted last week, this book introduced me to Vera Peters and another number of relatively unknown matriarchs, ladies who really should be known but yeah. still have yet to be discovered. Irina Sendler was on that list. And she's in the book, as, not because she was a mother of three, but Jason Poreth titled her The Mother of the Children of the Holocaust, Irina Sendler aided the rescue and relocation of 2,500 Jewish children during oh that goodness. dark time in history. I wasn't surprised that I hadn't heard of Irina Sedler. I've remained relatively ignorant with heroes from World War II. Well, wars in general. Any, anymore for that matter. I've just seen enough photos and I read enough history to know that my heart just can't handle it. It's, hard. it's yeah. hard to read. I just, I, 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 I can't so fathom horrific. it. It's just, yeah. For example, Schindler's List. I know it's a brilliant movie. Yeah, but I just haven't been able to bring myself to watch it. Just too hard. I know that I'm missing out on a movie and it probably would make me grow, but it's just too much for me. Words I just I can't convey. They just can't express the evil, and I've just chosen to stay somewhat ignorant mainly as a way to protect my own heart. Right. I know it's so hard to watch. Yeah. Or do you even just know that yeah. it happened and But I might break that with a movie out on Irina Sendler, a movie, a woman I think many of us have never heard of. Irina Sendler was born Irina Kraiznowska. She was born in Warsaw, Poland on February fifteenth, 1910. Her father, Stanislaw Kraiznowska, was a doctor, and many of his patients were Jewish and poor. At the time, many Polish doctors wouldn't treat Jewish patients because of the propaganda. That's awful. I just... I, I, yeah. Once again, can't even, can't even fathom. But the propaganda of the time said that the Jewish people were outsiders and different. But Irina's father didn't share their ideology. He once told Irina, you see a man drowning, you must try to save him, even if you cannot swim. Oh, wow. A powerful lesson that clearly made an impression on young Irina. In 1918, the world was dealing with typhus, and Stanislaw got sick. I had to look up
0: typhus because I heard of it. But that's, that's well. I think that's what they use. Eventually, we're using for DDT. You said oh. use that on that. I remember oh. reading that, but
1: wouldn't anyways. surprise me. But typhus is. Uh, I had to look it up. It, it isn't spread by human contact like the cold or flu, right. but by fleas, yeah. mites, and lice. It's so disgusting! But it causes fevers, chills, vomiting, nausea, confusion. Modern lifestyles and improvement in our general hygiene have made typhus extremely uncommon. But we also have antibiotics to treat people infected with typhus. So. Right,
0: going not have that problem.
1: Unfortunately, not in the time for Irina's dad. He sadly died a few days before Irina's seventh birthday, but the lessons he taught her in his short life were evident throughout hers. Irina would later study to be a social worker, and her education from time spent with her father in their small village would prove to be just as valuable Aww. as her formal education, if not more so. Because she was raised to believe we're all the same, She was well-versed in the Jewish culture. She knew their songs, traditions, customs, all because her father had treated Jewish patients. Right. So fast forward to September 1st, 1939, when Germans invaded Poland and they surrendered within several weeks, which kind of reminded me of the the Churchill Club. Right. I read that by the time Poland surrendered, 40,000 people were dead in Warsaw and another 70,000 were dead on the battlefield. They simply were outmatched. Jews were rounded up and fenced into less than a two mile square area of Warsaw, known as the ghetto. Oh, yeah, that's so. um, With the Nazi invasion of Poland in 1939, they set up an area of the cities to restrict populations they considered undesirable, such as Jews, Romani, which were gypsies at the time. I read um, anybody with any type of disability if you were a homosexual is what they called it at the time, they, they were put into the ghetto and were these small sections of towns and cities that were blocked off from the rest of the city. Jews and Romani were segregated into these small parts of the city and within weeks the Nazis invaded Poland. Jews and Romani were uprooted from their homes and jobs and forced into certain areas of the cities or towns. Beginning in 1940, some of the ghettos were literally walled off from the rest of the city by new brick construction or barbed wire and they were guarded the Warsaw Ghetto that I'm referring to, um, one of the largest Nazi-occupied in Europe, was home to 400,000 Jews in an area less than 1.5 square miles.
0: I'm just trying to imagine this, you know, in my head.
1: Jews it's comprised so 30% of the Warsaw population, but they were forced to live in a 2.4% area of Warsaw. Just inhumane. Yeah, absolutely. The average occupancy per room in the Warsaw Ghetto was 7.2 people per room. In other I had no idea these ghettos even existed before Irina, but in other ghettos, there would be room occupancies as high as 12 to 30 people per room. Jews or Romani, if they were found out of the ghetto, they were subject to harsh punishment or even death. Think about just some of the parts of the city being walled off and suddenly being filled with 50 times the normal population in just a few weeks. No access to other parts of the city. While the living conditions varied in ghettos across Europe, conditions were typically brutal. The Nazis were intent on eradicating the Jews, and they hoped to do so by slowly starving the Jewish population and letting diseases take the lives of countless others. Since they couldn't leave the ghetto, Jews had to supplement their food rations provided by the Germans by smuggling food in. In 1941, the average ration for a Jew in the Warsaw Ghetto was 184 calories per day. It was mostly dry bread, flour, potatoes. You can't live off of that. No! Turnips and grain. I just, Once,
0: I just, you know, as you were talking about, you're saying this, I'm just imagining what, how people are thinking and during the, the time. these are parents in there. These
1: are, you have your children in there with you. Right. And that you don't have enough food for yourself or your children. You're living on top of each other. Just the, it's, it's like you said, inhumane. You yeah. just, I, I can't even fathom. Once a month they'd receive some sugar, margarine, and meat. The amounts provided were considered to be starvation diets. It eventually lead to illness or death. Children were often used to smuggle food from outside the ghetto, which was extremely dangerous. With the crowded living conditions and lack of sanitation, disease ran rampant. There were few medical supplies and little in the way of qualified care. Tens of thousands of people died in the ghetto just from disease. Dysentery and typhus were very common. They had no firewood to burn and had to burn items found in the ghetto for warmth. In 1942, the Nazis began to move people from the ghetto to concentration camps or simply take them out to the countryside to be shot. Of the 400,000 Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto, approximately 300,000 were deported to concentration camps. There were some attempted uprisings against the Nazis from the ghetto, but they were brutally shut down and almost all of the ghetto population were killed. (sighs) The German soldiers were extremely worried about typhus, so they had no problem allowing medical personnel into the ghetto if it meant it would lower their risk. So Irina... Kind selfish of them. golly! Irina would enter the ghetto as a caseworker, sometimes dressed as a nurse. She'd smuggle in food and other necessities. And keep in mind, the Germans controlled what entered the ghetto, and many Jews simply were, you know, they starved from lack of food. I read that Irina witnessed a young boy begging for food, only to pass by him shortly later. He had already passed away and someone had partially covered his body in newspapers. She, I think the rest of her life had to live with these images and these yeah. sounds and, and just the nightmare that this was. But the conditions these people endured are inconceivable. Death was everywhere, and yet Irena kept returning to do what she could. So brave. I mean, Very brave, and I love that that one seed that her yeah. father planted in her. She just keeps going back to, I I can't imagine the picture that, and and danger,
0: right? And she didn't have to do this. And what? She, no, what is she like? Thirty at this point? I mean, if she's yeah, going, I, into I
1: don't, I don't, nineteen Good know. question 20, look into that. Yeah, if thirty, if that, I don't yeah. think she was quite that old yet. But with the help of her underground network, Zagato, the ghetto was roughly the size of Central Park, oh, New York yeah. Central Park. Okay, and picture all you know, four hundred fifty thousand Jews forced to live in that with high fences and armed guards, making sure that they stayed in that area. So there was this underground network that I said, Zagato, she had a codename, Jolanta.
0: Wow.
1: I'm probably mispronouncing that, but she would smuggle food and supplies to the ghetto, which evolved into her smuggling orphans out oh, of the ghetto. Okay. Remember, if you're caught aiding a Jew at this time, you were killed. I read a quote from Vladza Bardawski, a founding member of Zagato. He said, I hate to say that no work was as dangerous as hiding a Jew, when you're hiding a human being, you have to realize you have a ticking time bomb in your home. If the Nazis find out, they will kill you, your family, and the person you're hiding. That was his quote. It was yeah. asking the ultimate sacrifice in order to help a complete stranger, right. and that's the amazing part. Yeah. The,
0: these were strangers; they just were called to saving them. Yeah, it's. it's I mean, it's. It seems like so long ago in our yeah. history, but really, not long not enough. Really. Just, You know, and what a horrible, horrific time. I mean, Irina and 10
1: heroes working under her were willing to take that risk. And as the Nazis started clearing out the ghetto and deporting their inhabitants to concentration camps, it only escalated the timeline to try to help children escape. Irina and her co-conspirators had several ways that they would get kids out. They used an ambulance. Sometimes a child would be taken out hidden under the stretcher. Some kids just climbed through the sewer oh. and had, like, secret tunnels underground, which talk about what they must have – it's just scary yeah. for a kid and seen under there. Sometimes a trolley would carry out a child hiding in a sack, a trunk, a suitcase, or something similar. I also read that sometimes – they didn't use these often, but there would be times where they would use German shepherds and, oh. the, like, have them bark so that it would distract. Distract,
0: okay. And take,
1: they wouldn't hear the, the baby crying or the children screaming or whatever, but – Irina often had to convince the parents to let her take the children. Oh, wow. you know, they were too afraid. I guess, yeah. or- and often she'd be asked by the parents if Irina could guarantee their safety, and she had to be truthful and point out that she couldn't guarantee her own safety. She wasn't right. sure she'd survive leaving the ghetto, but at least if they turned their child over to her, it had it gave them a little bit of hope that right. they might survive. There were times the parents asked to think about it. And Irina would return to the ghetto only to find that the family had been deported to a concentration camp. So it was too late. I just, I, I can't even imagine. The danger didn't end when they escaped the ghetto. There was the constant fear of being discovered. Jewish children were taught Polish songs, Catholic prayers, and were given new names And birth certificates often of Polish children who had died. So they had records. Irina kept the children's identities on tissue paper hidden in the hopes that one day they would be reunited with their families, which I think is so sweet. Yeah. Unfortunately, that didn't happen since most of the parents died. She guarded the list with her life and had plans for every scenario to protect the identity of the children and her co-conspirators. Thank goodness she was prepared for all sorts of scenarios, knowing that at any moment she could be taken away by the Gestapo. A fellow Zagato fighter had been arrested and tortured until she revealed Irina's name. And oh. then and then she was killed. So Irina was arrested and sentenced to death, even though when they went to arrest her, they found no evidence in her home, which I think is pretty amazing. She had, a, um, wow. she had money hidden from Zagato. Yeah. You know, they collected money to help free the Jews, but... She heard the boots approaching her door, and she quickly gave the list to her friend, and her friend tucked it in her shirt. Later, the friend buried the list to keep the secret. Irina was tortured for months. Both of her legs were broken, oh as well as her yeah. feet. I mean, I read that later in her life, she had to use a cane to walk after this. So this was a lifelong she was hurt sacrifice past. that yeah. she gave. She was taken out for execution, but to her surprise, she was free. Zagato, the wow. that underground group had bribed the guard for her release and I thought it was interesting. So she had a code name and also they named, you know, Zagato was named but they called it Conrad Zagato because they wanted to trick the German soldiers. Oh. So the German soldiers were looking for someone named Conrad not, Zagato okay. instead of not realizing that that was actually their group.
0: Oh, clever. She spent
1: yeah, they were smart and very calculating in everything that they did. But she spent the remainder of the war in hiding once she escaped, just like the children she had saved. She saw a poster even declaring her death, and I just can't imagine keeping that secret. When the war was over, Irina reunited with her friend who had hidden the children's names in a jar buried under a tree in a yard nearby. They turned it into the leader of a Jewish organization trying to find families. Not only did that signify the number of children she saved, but it also gave the kids a piece of their true identity because these oh, had their Jewish names. Right. They had been given who for, they you were, know, who yeah, they are. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. the renamed children could now try to piece back some of their true identity. Right. There's no question this woman was a hero. Although before she died, she discussed how much she disliked being called a hero. She didn't like that she was receiving all the accolades from the work her network did. So So humble. I know. She was sad that they died before they got the recognition that they so deserved, which I think is sweet. Irina was recognized by VAD Vashem, which is the World Holocaust Remembrance Center. That's a great website to look up. There are some, um, as sad as it is, there are some great stories in there of heroes. And people trying to, like, one had um, the history of these earrings that someone had hidden for, you know, because when they were turned over, they had to give them all of their belongings, anything of value. So it's it's nice that some of these items are being returned to families. Or in museums where hopefully we can, something like this will never happen again. But in 1965, she was recognized by... Bad Basham and the Jewish Foundation for Righteous in New York City. But 45 years of communism in Poland buried her story. And that's why we haven't heard of her. right? But it quite possibly might have stayed buried if it wasn't for a teacher. Oh. That's uh, the other part of the story from a rural town in Kansas encouraging his students to participate in a year-long project for National History Day. Oh. So Megan Stewart, Elizabeth Cambers... And Sabrina Coons decided to collaborate on a project from an old newspaper clipping they came across about Irina Sandler. When they asked their teacher about this woman, he had no idea who she was. And so he encouraged them to look into it. His class motto, so cool. you will love this, he who changes one person changes the entire world.
0: Oh, So I
1: love that motto that he spread to his, yeah. uh, his students. But the girls uncovered the story in 1999 and started doing presentations to spread the story of this unknown hero. It was at one of these presentations. They did like, I want to say, three hundred and seventy-five. By wow! And in two thousand one, they after a presentation, there was a Jewish businessman asking the girls if they'd be willing to travel to Warsaw to continue putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Oh, that's really great! I and mean, interview Irina oh. Sandler herself along with surviving children. Oh. So this performance was at a. I a, love the closure. On I know. That.
0: I mean, you uh, know, sad sort as sad as it is,
1: but giving filling in the story, right? I guess, for the victims. But the performance was at a large school district about 100 miles away from their school. So it, I just love that it was a seed planted so far away, but this guy, he he wanted them to go yeah. um, interview Irina. The performance was in January, and the businessman noted that they'd have to travel that spring since Irina was in poor health. The girls agreed, and he raised the money for the tour... And this history project in twenty four hours. Oh, so it was a go.
0: And as before GoFundMe. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I
1: mean, this that's incredible. I, just, I love that people were willing to help out right. to get this story out there. In May two thousand one, Mister Conrad, that's the the teacher, and four students traveled to Poland to meet Irina Sendler, and they interviewed many of the people touched by this woman and her network, including a famous Polish poet who was saved by Irina, and. Elsbita Kowska, a baby that was smuggled out in a carpenter box when she was just five months old. Most of of the children were not babies that they did. I mean, they did rescue some babies, but I read that most of them were not infants. But this high school history project told the world about Irina Sendler, a story that needed to be shared. All three girls now are married. They've graduated from college. Megan Stewart-Felt is working at the Lowell Milken Center for Unsung Heroes in Fort Scott, Kansas. Another great... Website. website to go I'm check sure. out because this kind of just kind of started this unsung hero concept but the lowell milken center is an educational foundation developing exciting history projects around the world things that we haven't heard about obviously that's why it's unsung heroes so to teach respect for all people sabrina Coons murphy and elizabeth cambers hutton are both teachers today and all three continue to share Irina's story through presentations one of Amazon's most popular books on the Holocaust is called Life in a Jar, the Irina Sendler Project by Jack Mayer. You can find it on our feature book page on com. I think I'll break down and I started talking about this movie. But um, there was a movie in 2009 that Hallmark made for CBS, and the premiere, it's called The Courageous Heart of Irina Sendler, did have two... Pretty famous oh, actresses. Yeah. The premiere was in Fort Scott, Kansas.
0: Oh wow! Where
1: these girls had lived. Uh, at the yeah. Oh,
0: that's awesome.
1: Renata Saldman, a woman who was rescued by Arena at fourteen, was in attendance. So I oh. love that the movie.
0: Yeah. You know, the
1: red carpet was at, at this, and that was that they have the premiere there. I'm just realizing that sometimes inspiration comes. In the ugliest, darkest places. And Irina learned from her father early on how important it is to help others. And because of that, there are 2,500 families that were touched by his sentiment, the, the sentiment that he instilled in her. I'm grateful to hear of all the resistance fighters doing the right thing, even if it meant losing their lives. It so easily could have ended, closing the book before it was ever written. But thankfully, a few girls from Kansas... Inspired by their teacher. That is, I, I just love, love that. It's so incredible. Pieces, kept the story very much alive. And I'm certain there are heroes living among us at the very moment and heroes in the making. that right, We don't more know More stories story. to be told. Yeah. Yeah. I also, in looking into this, Gal Gadot is going to be playing Irina Sendler if it's oh. still, you know, who knows with COVID and yeah. all of that.
0: That's so cool. But
1: I was reading that her grandpa, Czechoslovakia, was taken over. um when he was 13 oh. and she has just an amazing uh, like her family has an amazing story related to World War 2 and and the impact that he had but how awesome is it that oh. Galgado's going to she can play strong oh i know absolutely that so that's herself. another movie that i got to watch when it comes out
0: Sunday was Mother's Day, and I came across this story about Vicki Nguyen. She's an investigative journalist for NBC. Oh, of course, she's on the Today so. But she—I wasn't even going to ask because I, I knew. Okay, but she wrote this lovely tribute to her mother. Her mother fled Vietnam to the U.S. with Vicky when she was just eight months old, so she could have a better life. And I just love how Vicky wrote about her mom. So grateful. To her, that she feels about herself that, that she doesn't even warrant Mother's Day. Aww. I know, but it kind of says a lot. Vicki's parents had moved back to Vietnam, but recently returned to the US to help take care of her three girls that are 12, nine, and four because Vicky and her husband have demanding careers with unpredictable mm-hmm. hours. Mm-hmm. So now there's seven people living in their New York City apartment. So they apartment. moved
1: here for a better life for the daughter. And, and then, then eventually they went back. back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: And then they moved back just, because, I think, prior to COVID, but just mm-hmm. to kind of help with the girls. And she describes her mom, leading by example, with love. And she's never cross. And she's just constantly in good My cheer. My kids cannot
1: say that. I think I'm like, <laughs> I go, wow. I
0: just can't imagine yeah. that. She cares for the girls from the start of the day, getting them to school until bedtime. She also shuttles them to after-school activities like gymnastics. And she's a fabulous cook. She can whip up uh, spaghetti, chow mein, and Vietnamese crepes. Vicky notes the pandemic has been hard on everyone at home. Girls Zooming school as well as she works from home. Yet, like many of us, she says it's been a rare time of interrupted togetherness, which we've commented you know. and talked about. Well, I love that she's putting a positive spin on it. Oh, for you sure. Know. Yeah. It's like the lotus blooming in the mud. Right. Right. Her mom is in her 70s, and I just love her mom's joy. She treasures her time with her granddaughters, and I also appreciate Vicki's so appreciative of her mother. And when she's saying, so when Mother's Day comes, I celebrate all that my mom has given to me and all that she continues to provide. Mm. And I just love this story about a multi-generation mm-hmm. family. Their love, support of each other. Especially is sweet, you know, during the crazy times. Yeah. Very sweet. Real
1: beauty is of the heart. It's the glow that lights your face when you're doing something kind. It's the tears you cry in appreciation of someone else's pain. Real beauty is kindness, gratitude, and love. Roma Downey
0: Thanks for listening to Tangential Inspiration. We really want to hear from you. Email us your comments or story suggestions at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com or leave a comment on our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Our website has all our podcast episodes, show notes, stories,
1: follow-ups, and links to websites and books we talk about. Like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great week.